Morning, friends, especially those online. It's my joy and privilege to read God's word to us and praise God that his word never changes. If you have your Bibles with you at home, please turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. We'll be reading from Isaiah 44, verses 12 to 24. Isaiah 44, verses 12 to 24. This is quite late in his prophecy. And here, Isaiah in some ways, satirically, uh, pushes against idolatry. Isaiah 44, verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his, with his arm, strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it, and then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break it forth into singing. O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Our second reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and this is the passage that Pastor Ben will be preaching from. One Corinthians 8. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be, for all, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word to us. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me and see me? Um, it's a strange new day we live in. Um, welcome to Livestream Church. Um, good to see everyone uh, in the camera there. Uh, there's a few people around the room, about 10 or so people sort of scattered around trying to maintain our four square uh, meter spacing. Uh, consists of the music team that some of you may have seen on stream, as well as the tech team who is uh, making this live stream happen. Now, these are uh, unprecedented times that we live in, aren't they? Uh, never in my life have I imagined uh, that we would ever do church or that I would ever do church this way. Uh, during the week, uh, one of my college friends, my Bible college friends, said, uh, did I miss the class where they taught us how to do this? Um, and I was thinking the same thing, right? Did I miss the class that taught us how to run church and to be pastors uh, and be Christians at a time like this? Now, honestly, be, honestly said, I, I've been really sad this week uh, that, that things are the way they are and especially in the way that it impacts us as a church, but also thinking about the impact that it will have on every individual one of us. Uh, there are many industries which are suffering greatly at the moment, uh, many people with different worries um, for health, but also for finances and in other areas. Uh, and so uh, I do feel great sadness that, um, that life is the way it is at the moment, and that things for us as a church uh, is the way it is at the moment. Uh, as much as we try to be upbeat, uh, and that we will continue to do church in this new way, uh, there is something missing, isn't it? Uh, but not being able to see each other physically, to be able to shake hands and to give each other hugs uh, and to be uh, close to each other. And so let's keep praying 
that God in His mercy will resolve this situation and we can return to, to a life that we maybe took for granted, uh, that we were living a few weeks before. Um, but there's something to be said about what God is doing in this time of these trials. Uh, and I hope that we uh, as Christians and that the world will learn uh, what God wants us to learn uh, through this crisis. But this is church for now and we're going to make the most of it. Right, we are going to make the most of it. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I want us to do something a bit different uh, to commemorate kind of our first new way of doing things. Uh, I would love for us all to just pause for a second and take out your phones, uh, if you're not using it for the live stream, and take a selfie wherever you're at, right, or a Wi-Fi. Uh, and I want you to post, uh, uh, don't post it, just send it to me um, on Messenger or WhatsApp. I'm going to do a collage, and then maybe we'll put it on the web page, right, one whole page of all of us. Uh, churching together as SLE Church at 9 and at 11.40 a.m. So wherever you are, okay, I'm going to pose right in front of the camera here. So with the, with the live stream behind you, um, or if you're on your phone, then just put into selfie mode, that's fine. Uh, take a photo wherever you're at with whoever you're with. Uh, try and maintain your social distancing, or maybe you can relax it for two seconds while you take the photo. And we'll... For the first time in church, I'll get you to pull out your phone, take a photo, and then uh, later on after the service, uh, please do send me that photo, either through WhatsApp or Messenger, and I'll try and put that into a collage and put it onto our church webpage or Facebook page. I think it would be great for us to be able to see that we're all doing this together and that we really are a church, even though we're physically separated uh, for this period of time. Now, uh, the, uh, the staff uh, and I kind of spent a bit of time, not a lot of time, we didn't have much time to change things up, but we were thinking about whether we should have changed the series to be one that's more focused on the current situation. Uh, but we decided that we'll press on with this planned series, uh, which by God's providence will have uh, quite a bit to say uh, about our current situation. Uh, this short series that we're beginning today in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 10 uh, is called The Welcoming Church which is ironic given that, we as, that church as we know it is, uh, has been suspended for, the, for at least the next three weeks and who knows for how long more into the future. But what these three weeks of sitting under 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 will do is keep the fact that we are still a church uh, squarely at the center of our thinking. Right? No matter what expression of church we have to do right now, we're still a church and we still need to th keep thinking about what it means for us to be a welcoming church. Um, and maybe we need to be even more creative and to give it more thought and more effort during these challenging times. But I think that the work that we put in now, the effort, the creativity, the commitment, and the convictions that we will develop and, and live out through these difficult and strange times will have a great ongoing impact when life gets back to normal. Can you imagine if we put in this much effort now to, to overcome these few weeks and months of difficulties, but when things go back to being easy and we maintain some of these principles, some of these efforts, some of these convictions, uh, imagine what our church would be like uh, in, the, in the months and years to come. That's certainly my hope and the hope of the elders and leaders of the church. Now with that in mind, please uh, join me as I pray as we uh, look into uh, 1 Corinthians 8. Let's pray. Our oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your sovereignty. Uh, you are a God that is much bigger and greater than we can ever imagine. And for that, we give you thanks, that we cannot put you in a box, uh, that we have a knowledge of you uh, that gives us security and safety and hope and peace at a time like this. 
And we do pray that at a time like this, the world that has a, a, a small or a weak uh, view of you, uh, a, a view that, 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 that thinks that you cannot be where evil is, that you cannot be present and real or good when there is trouble in this world, we pray that they will come to know that you are a big God who is able to control both the good and the bad and use all things for your purposes, for you to be able to help us see that what matters most uh, is the kingdom of your, your son, the Lord Jesus, to be part of that kingdom, to be your children, and to be able to look forward to life eternal of hope and joy and peace with you. And so as we gather today, this morning, in, in, in a new way, uh, please help us to be reminded of your goodness and greatness. And please help us to keep pressing on as Christians and as a church. Please bless us as we go through this new series to keep thinking about what it means to be a welcoming church, especially in light of the present crisis. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 8. We'll be working through uh, these 13 verses. And also if you have the bulletin in front of you, um, that, that always helps to follow through. And if you're finding problems with the stream, um, try and dial down the settings uh, to, to maybe 360p or something uh, to be able to help the stream to be more smooth. You don't need to see uh, me very sharp, right? It's more important to be able to hear what's going on. Um, so, and, and more important to be able to have the Bible uh, in front of you sharp. So I'll keep that uh, in front of you. Now, as we dive into 1 Corinthians 8, uh, we need a bit of context to begin. Right? The Corinthian church was a messed up church. If you were to flip through from chapter 1 onwards, you will see that they are struggling with all sorts of issues arising from a very worldly way of thinking about what it means to be spiritual. So right? they, they thought themselves to be Christians and very spiritual, but it was a very worldly-influenced spirituality. So in chapter 1 to 4, we see that they had these power struggles uh, and worldly thinking about leadership. And then in chapter 5 to 7, we see a, a very twisted and worldly thinking about sexual matters. And then in these three chapters, 8 to 10, we see a, a worldliness and wrong thinking in the use of their spiritual freedoms. And then when we get to 11 to 14, we see a spirit, uh, you know, these worship wars at church based on a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. Now, our short series will focus on chapters 8 to 10. And these three chapters present three scenarios that raises the question of what is most important to us as we relate to each other as a church. Right? Three scenarios that raise the question of what is most important to us as we relate to each other as a church. Uh, in chapter 8, it will be the use of knowledge. Right? Will knowledge be used to pull down or to build up the people around us? In chapter 9, we'll look at the use of rights. Do we use rights for ourselves and our benefit or for the benefit of others? And then in chapter 10, we will see the use of our freedoms. Will it lead us and others away from God, or will it actually be used to draw people towards God? So we've got knowledge, we've got rights, and then we've got freedoms in these three weeks. Now these truths uh, are still highly relevant to the COVID-19 situation that we find ourselves in. Maybe not always directly relevant, uh, but perhaps that's not such a bad thing. We'll continue to let God's word set the agenda, right? Rather than let uh, the things of life always set the agenda for what we think about and what we teach, it's sometimes good just to let God's word set the agenda and show how it's relevant uh, to our present situation. Now, what these challenging and difficult times does do is put our attitudes and actions under a more searching spotlight, isn't it? When we are stressed, when we're under crisis, it really shows us up for who we really are. It brings out the, the best 
as well as the worst in us. And so I think as we explore what it means to be a welcoming church, uh, how, we, how we use our knowledge and rights and freedoms as a Christian, these challenging times will show up what we're really like as people and as a church. Now let's dive into 1 Corinthians 8. Now as you open 1 Corinthians 8, it's clear that the presenting issue of this chapter is food offered to idols, right? Clear from verse 1 and clear from verse 4. But this presenting issue serves to highlight the bigger issue of knowledge and love, right? The bigger issue of knowledge and love. When it comes to knowledge, Paul says we all have knowledge, right? We all have some knowledge. Now, some more than others, for sure, but we are all knowledgeable about many things to various degrees, right? Many things to various degrees. Paul acknowledges the Corinthian church was a knowledgeable church, uh, but the problem with this church was the way that they used their knowledge. It puffed them up. Right? What, what they should have been doing was to, to lovingly build other people up. Now, I've got to get my clicker here, so let me just go quickly get my clicker. All right, so... Now, uh, the, the way that Paul describes knowledge here is it's like a growth agent, right? Somewhat like yeast, okay? So yeast uh, is it, a beautiful thing. It, it grows flour into bread, right? Fluffy, yummy bread. I think that's Japanese, some kind of bread that looks awesome and makes me hungry, right? So it's a, it's a growing agent. But yeast, which is basically a fungus, can also grow into something really gross. Now, please don't do what I do and search yeast infection, Right, for the doctors out there, right, you know what I'm talking about. Don't do it, okay? Because you'll, you'll get a shock as to what you'll see when, it, when, when yeast grows in a, in a bad way. Right? Paul says that knowledge can either grow yourself, right, grow your ego, give you a big head, or it can grow others through lovingly building them up. Right? Knowledge can grow you in a bad way, or it can grow others in a good way. Now, before Paul gets into the specific use of knowledge relating to idol food, Paul gives a warning that kind of undergirds, that, that forms the foundation of this discussion in verse 2 and verse 3. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Right? Verse 2 is a call to humility. Any knowledge that we have is limited, and we uh, simply can't, and we won't know everything. And, and even the things that we do know, that we think we know, we might not know as well as we think we do, or the, in a way that we should. So you, you, think, you think about some uni students, right? If you get to the workforce, if you're a, a middle management or high management, you see the new grads come in. Sometimes, you know, these new grads, they've gotten their degrees, right? They're fresh off the production line, and they think they know everything, right? But then uni knowledge is often theoretical knowledge, that gets shown up when you have to get out into the real world and actually apply it to real situations. Right? They, they think they know a lot, but there's so much more to learn. We know, but not nearly as much as we think. Then there is a knowledge that we certainly have, but that we fail or we find it hard to apply. We know that we ought to love and honour our parents, but that's incredibly hard to do sometimes, isn't it? We know the laws of the land and therefore our good. We know the guidelines, right, to follow in this COVID-19 situation. But sometimes we just can't help ourselves but ignore and flout them. 
We know, but sometimes we don't have the will or the ability to apply this knowledge. The Corinthians certainly needed humility. Their knowledge was limited to the head and did not flow out from the heart. They knew stuff, but not in the way that they should have. Now, verse 3 is kind of the contrast, isn't it? And it's clear by the word, but, at the beginning of verse 3. But it's a strange contrast, isn't it, when you look at it? You'd expect verse 3 to say something like, but if you love God, then you will know God. Or something like, but if you love God, you will know as you ought to know. You'd expect that to be the contrast, to be the flip side of verse 2. But what it actually does say is, if you love God, you will be known by God. You see, there is a knowledge that is greater than us knowing stuff. To be known by God, for God to know us, that's far, far more important. When it comes to knowledge, that is the most important. Because as you can imagine, if we are known by God, which means that we are in a relationship with God, and we are, we are walking with God, being nurtured and led by God, then we will grow in proper knowledge, in a godly knowledge, and in a loving knowledge. Now in verse 4, Paul finally deals head-on with the issue of food offered to idols. Now a bit of background here is needed for us to understand what's going on here. Right, food offered to idols is pretty much foreign to the Western world uh, that we live in now. But for many of us who are Asian, who, live, who come from the Eastern world, it's pretty familiar to us, isn't it? Uh, the, the eating of food offered to idols uh, in the time of Corinth is actually pretty similar to the reasons why we would uh, eat food that has been offered to idols today. So many of you uh, may have experienced um, uh, you know, going to, to a wedding, for instance, right, of a Malay or an Indian friend, uh, and, and you will see that they would have maybe gone through a religious ceremony uh, with the food being offered uh, before they eat it. Or perhaps for us as Chinese, uh, you might have gone home right, uh, to your grandparents for Chinese New Year. I used to do that growing up. We would take a trip back to Ipoh every year for Chinese New Year to see my grandparents and my aunties and uncles. And every morning, uh, my grandmother would um, you know, offer the food uh, to the idols and to the ancestors. And then at lunch, that's the food that we ate. Okay? Food that has been offered to idols. For some of us, uh, coming from Asia, we will go to, to meat markets uh, where the food has been prepared in a halal way. It has been devoted to Allah beforehand. Uh, or if you go to a Thai restaurant and then they first offered their food right, to, to, to their Thai gods and to, to their president, I think, or their king, who is their god. So we're familiar with, with what's going on here, right? As we read through this passage in chapter 8, we can see that in this aspect of life, there is a conflict over this issue. And it's quite easy to form a picture of what is going on here. Now, in the current church, there's a group that's described as the weak, right? most likely meaning that they don't have the right knowledge, who think that food offered to idols is tainted and unclean because of their exposure to idols. Um, and so if a, they, they believe, these weak Christians believe, that if a Christian ate this idol food, they would somehow become unclean. They would somehow be sinning against God. And then there's another group of, of knowledgeable people who are totally fine right, with eating food that has been offered to idols. Why? Well, because they knew their theology, right? They had knowledge. They, 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 were, they, they knew their Bibles. And, and verse 4 to 6 is the knowledge that they possessed. And the, the argument goes something like this. Right, idols are actually, in reality, nothing. Right? While it's true that people do regard and worship many so-called gods, 
The reality is that these gods don't really exist at all. It's kind of like me saying that I believe in the force, right? And that Jedi masters really do exist in the real world and not just in Star Wars. I know a friend who puts on the census, right, every time it comes around that he belongs to the Jedi, right, that he's, uh, his religion is the force, right? And they believe that force is strong with me, right, and, and, and with you, but, but not with you. Okay, I'm sorry, right? And that's what they really believe, but, but they can believe all they want, but it doesn't make it true. Sorry, Steve. You know, Star Wars isn't real. You have to keep living life uh, with a different thinking, right? Now, idols exist simply as idols. They are not gods. They have no real existence. Paul knows this, and the Corinthians know this. This is truth. And they know that there's only one true God. We see this at the end of verse 4 to verse 6. The true God who has revealed himself in history as consisting of the Father, the source of all things and the source of all life, and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the agent and ruler of all creation. There is no God but one true God. Paul knows this and the Corinthians know this. This is truth. So what's the problem, right? What's the problem? Well, the problem is that not everyone in the Corinthian church had this knowledge. Now, how could it be that a Corinthian Christian wouldn't have knowledge that there's no such thing as idols and that there's only one true God? Like, what Christian wouldn't know that there's no such thing as idols and there's only one true God? Well, verse 7 tells us, But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. The problem was that they had been associated with idolatry for so long that these idols that they were bound to and which they had worshipped for their whole lives did indeed seem real to them. Especially if, if they were really new to the faith or, or they were converts late in life having spent decades believing in the reality of idols, this connection to their past beliefs and experiences would have been extremely strong. And they may still have struggled with fear and with guilt. And this would have made their consciences especially sensitive. And maybe some of us know ex-alcoholics. And alcohol for these people are like, it's like a demon that destroyed their lives. And even though they know, having become Christians, that alcohol is in itself not an evil thing, but because of their past experiences with it, they never touch it. And if they were ever to drink alcohol, they would feel so guilty. They would feel like they've failed. They would feel like they've sinned. That's kind of what's going on with this weak people, with their past association with idolatry. But you see, the, the issue here isn't the problem of their weakness, is it? Paul isn't writing this passage to tell these weak Christians to fix their wrong thinking, to fix their weak consciences, and just, you know, just, just become more knowledgeable. That would be a good thing, of course, for them to grow in their understanding, but that's not the point here. No, Paul's concern here is the unloving way the so-called knowledgeable people were treating these weaker brothers and sisters. The issue here is with the, the, the knowledgeable, right? The so-called those in the know who were not loving to these weaker brothers and sisters. Based on knowledge, they carried on eating food offered to idols. 
They were in the know, but, and they knew that nothing was wrong at all with eating the food. And so they were thinking to themselves, well, you know, why let someone who doesn't know any better prevent me from doing something that I want to do that is right to do? Why miss out right, on the good food? Why miss out on the celebrations and the social life? Why miss out on opportunities, right, to be able to spend time with unbelieving friends? So off they went to their parties, to their festivals, to hang out with their pagan friends, and these weaker brothers and sisters who are with them or who see them are let down a terrible path. So Paul says, picking up from verse 8, verse 8 to 12, <clears throat> Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged <clears throat> if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. <clears throat> now as a Corinthian Christian, you might be wondering, wow, where did that come from, right? That escalated fast. Now we're talking about eating food that is obviously fine to eat and then somehow, bam, it's a matter of life and death. How, how did that happen? You see, the issue isn't the food in and of itself, is it? Food is food. It has no bearing on our relationship with God. You're no better off or no worse off whether you eat or don't eat food. It's a neutral matter. The issue here is the choice to eat when you know it has the potential to harm others. It's the choice to eat when you know there's a potential to harm others. Now, this absolutely matters. The issue is that no regard is paid to the damage that might be caused to the weaker person. This is a very serious matter. Because others are eating, the weak in conscience are led to go against their conscience. And so they eat, then they feel guilty, they feel like they've reverted back to idolatry and have been unfaithful to God. Now, in, in Romans chapter 14, Paul has another discussion about unclean food, and he says this, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Right? These weaker Christians have been led to eat, not believing that it's the right thing to do, and that is sin. Which is why a seemingly nothing issue like food now becomes a matter of utter seriousness, a faith-destroying issue. By standing on their knowledge and rights, by having no loving consideration, the weak are stumbled. By causing them to sin, you have sinned against them, a brother or sister for whom Christ died. And to sin against a brother for whom Christ died or a sister for Christ died is to sin against Christ himself. Is that serious? That's what Paul is trying to say. And so Paul's conclusion is serious and stark. Therefore, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Serious, isn't it? I will never eat meat. That really cuts me, that one, right? 
I know some of you here and some of you watching love your meat. Can you imagine never doing something you know to be right if it ever has the potential of harming a brother or sister? It may sound over the top, but you see the extent of love that Paul is going for here. He will never use his knowledge in a way that doesn't love, that doesn't build up. He will never use knowledge in a way that destroys. Now, the particular issue of eating idol foods in the presence of weaker people is relevant only to a very small number of us. Right? It's not really something that we have to apply every day. I can't imagine we even have to apply it every year. And certainly, the application in these situations, if you ever find yourself in this situation, is just to follow what Paul says, right? In terms of this particular issue, very easy. Just apply what Paul says. But there's a broader principle to really reflect on and apply today. And the broader principle is this. Knowledge can be used to puff ourselves up and it can be used to tear others down. Right? That's on the negative, right? It can be used to puff ourselves up or to tear other people down, but this should never be the case. Instead, knowledge must be used to lovingly build other people up. Right? So three points, isn't it? Never be used to puff myself up or tear someone else down. Instead, it is to be used to build other people up. So the question then is easy, isn't it? How are we using our knowledge? How are we using our knowledge? Well, knowledge puffs up. That's one possible way. Is that true for you? Is that true for our church? Now, some of us definitely possess a lot more knowledge than others, right? Some of us uh, in this congregation, in our church, possess a lot of knowledge, and that's a great thing. The great commission right, that Jesus gave all disciples is for us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them uh, the Word of God. Uh, in, in 2 Timothy 3, the Bible is to be used by all believers to teach and correct and rebuke and train people up in righteousness. That is to say, we are to use our knowledge. That's a given. But how are you going to use your knowledge? How are you going about using your knowledge? Now, I want to ask you a few diagnostic questions to see whether you are a puffed-up knowledge user. Do you feel in some way superior and proud in your greater knowledge. Let's be honest, right? We all grow up in a meritocratic society where we are always being marked against each other and being ranked. You know when you know more than the person you're sitting across the room from. When you're sitting in a room of people, you know in an interaction one-on-one -on -one who has more knowledge. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel superior or proud? Are you more concerned with winning the argument or winning over the person? I don't mean beating the person, I mean winning them over, right? In a good way that benefits them. Win the argument, or is that what you're concerned, rather than to win the person? You know, when you have an, an, a discussion or an argument, do you walk away from that discussion feeling happy or sad based on whether you won or lost? And when you walk away from a discussion or a debate or even an argument, do you walk away feeling happy or sad based on whether you won or you lost, whether your arguments were true and better and, 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 and convincing? Is that your frame of reference? If, if so, then you're using knowledge to puff yourself up. Are people scared to ask questions or share their views with you? Do people walk away from talking to you feeling dumb? feeling judged, 
feeling hurt, feeling small. If they do, then the reality is that you probably use knowledge to puff yourself up. What about us as a church? Now every year, as new students and visitors arrive, uh, they, or you, if you're a student, uh, will visit a few different churches to decide where they want to go uh, and to be a part of, right, whether here in Australia. Now, SLE Church is often described uh, among all the different churches as the word church, right, the, the strong Bible teaching kind of church. Now, of course, to be called the word or the Bible teaching kind of church is to be associated with knowledge. Now, is that something that we are proud of? Is that something that we are proud of? Now, certainly, it's one of our core values, isn't it? If you look at our core values of our church, to preach and teach the word well in a Christ-centered way. And certainly, God commands for pastors and teachers and churches to grow in knowledge and spiritual insight. There is such thing as false and poor teaching. Let's make no mistake about that. But does being known for our knowledge make us feel superior to those who don't handle the word as well? Does it cause us to puff up? When we express our concern for the false and poor teachings in other churches, do we do it to just to make ourselves feel better and more superior? Or do we actually bring these concerns up because we have a loving concern that all of God's people will be taught God's word well and be led well? You see, knowledge that puffs up, that's not who we want to be. That's not the kind of church that we want to be. We do not want to use knowledge like that. Now, point B and C, I'll combine them together. Uh, it's easier to just talk about them together, right? To tear down or to build up. Now, knowledge that tears down usually happens when there is little thought given to others. We just do what we know is right, right? And who cares what other people think? Knowledge that builds up happens when there is loving consideration of others. True knowledge is always relational. Right? True knowledge is always relational. Which is it for us? Now consider a couple of scenarios. Consider alcohol, as I mentioned before. The knowledgeable know that alcohol is a gift from God. You type in the word uh, wine, just wine, in your Bible program, and you will come up with 236 hits right, in the Bible. Wine is strongly associated with blessing when it flows and cursing when it stops flowing. Wine gladdens the heart. It's a good thing. But some Christians, those who struggle with alcoholism or those who are raised in a very, very traditional and strict Christian heritage will be stumbled by this. So don't drink in front of them. Don't offer them a drink without first knowing their situation and their background, their thinking. Don't, don't flaunt your knowledge and cause them Offense. I knew this guy a few years back uh, who, was one of the, who was a leader, a young leader, and for some reason he used to like taking a selfie in front of his alcohol cabinet. Now, I'm not sure why he'd want to do that, right? You see all his expensive whiskey and, and gin and, and tequila and whatever he used to drink, and he'd stand there and he'd pose. And I, there's no words associated with the post. I don't know, maybe he was proud of the fact that he had all these you know, fancy drinks, but it was just weird, right, to, to do that given what a lot of Christians, or what some Christians may feel about alcohol. Consider another issue of clubbing with friends. There's nothing sinful in itself to go to nightclubs, of course, although obviously you're opening yourself to greater temptations to go to a place like that. But going in itself, there's no law against that. 
And maybe you go to be a part of your unbelieving friends' lives, right? Maybe that's how you are trying to reach out to them. But be mindful of who is watching and who is with you and who is impacted by your decision. Consider that some by former association with that lifestyle might be, might be led back into that lifestyle and back into sin. Consider those who harbor great fears about the dangers that such places have. Perhaps you can think of other situations of actions that come out of true knowledge that can cause stumbling. That would be a good thing to discuss at the end of the sermon, wouldn't it? But the principle is this. Let our use of knowledge build others up and not tear them down. And this is not just for our actions, but also, I think, for our words. We know a great deal of things, biblical knowledge and theological knowledge. In our field of work and study, in our sports and music and other interests and hobbies, in current affairs and in general knowledge. And perhaps most relevant for the present, some of us here have become experts, right, over this COVID-19 situation. Some of us are informed, some of us not so much. Some of us are doing our utmost to do the very best thing for the sake of others and for the sake of public health, and others aren't. Some have all the facts and others seem to be influenced by fake news. The question is, how are those more in the know going about relating with those who aren't? How much pressuring and judging and criticizing and correcting are we doing to those who seem weaker? Whether it's the Bible or godly living, or whether it's politics or public health, no matter what the knowledge is, the motivation and the manner in which we discuss and debate matters most. It is not the, the content, but the manner and the method that matters most. To win the people to the truth, we have to win people, not arguments. To win people to the truth, we have to win people, not arguments. This means that we need to love people and we need to understand people. We need to be wise and sensitive to where people are at, how they think, whether they're able to respond to what we say and how we say it. And even when the harder things need to be said, a warning or a rebuke, we do so genuinely out of love and in as loving a way as possible. Indeed, sometimes we just have to shut up because it is not the right time or the right thing to say. But sometimes it absolutely is the right thing to say, to speak up in rebuke or warning. Whatever it is, our motivation and our manner must be love. Now, as I said, I think SLE is known as the word kind of church, but I wonder whether people say that as an insult or a compliment. I would hate for us to be known as the kind of word church that is puffed up and puts people down. That's not the kind of word church we ought to be. I would love for us to be known as the word church that is clearly motivated by love, clearly driven to see people truly being built up as we teach and correct and rebuke and train people in righteousness with the word of God. I would love for us to be that kind of welcoming church a place where knowledge matters, yes, but only and always with love that builds up. A welcoming church that is known for its knowledge, but only and always with love 
that builds up. Let me pray that in these difficult times, we will think about how we can apply that in our own individual lives, at home, and in our online interactions with people, and in the way that we talk about the knowledge that we have. Can we use our words and our actions to build people up? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who reveals truth, uh, that there is knowledge and spiritual insight for us to gain and to live by. And yet the way that we use this knowledge, it can be used to puff ourselves up and, and to grow our pride and to destroy others. Or that our knowledge can be used in a way that lovingly builds other people up. We thank you for your word to us this morning. And we pray that you'll help us to consider what we are like in the way that we use knowledge, personally and as a church. Are we those that feel a sense of superiority when we know that we know more? Are we those that are thoughtless in the way that we act without consideration of how people around us are impacted by our actions? Are we those who use words uh, to tear other people down and to, to win arguments rather than to win people? Are we a kind of church where people feel welcomed and heard and understood even if we disagree on things? Do we go about speaking truth only in ways which are loving and building up? We pray during these difficult times when things are different, socially and as a church, where there is more interaction in different means like uh, over, over social media or digital means or over the phone. Help us to really think hard about our words and our actions. May our character and lives uh, truly be shaped by our love for others as we seek to share and teach the truth. All this we pray in Jesus' name.